Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 30th of November 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. And of course, I say this on St Andrew's Day. Um, Lots to get through. <laughs> a lot to get through. Well, we just thought we'd start off with the prediction of the sun on the 10th of November and here it was the gates are going to be open open the gates Boris Johnson to meet Bill Gates to plan national vaccine rollout with pharma giants so never mind debate with uh, Westminster and politicians it's get going with Bill Gates um, I've labeled them both idiots I actually think uh, that's not quite right but certainly it's interesting that somebody who's medically unqualified is helping advise uh, the vaccination uh, program for the country let's have a look at what was in that article a spokesperson for Downing Street said Mr Gate sorry Mr Gates Mr Johnson and bosses from pharmaceutical giants would discuss the PM's five-point plan to stop future pandemics so that's viruses finished Mike it's good. all over yeah that's good and um, what else did they say they said the plan was developed with the help of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Trust and aims to build a massive network of zootnotic hubs to identify potentially dangerous viruses before they can leap from animals to humans. Um, now, that is the exact wording of the Sun article. We think they're talking about zoonotic. And uh, just under that article, I thought I'd pop it on screen. Somebody said, I'm pretty sure that zoonotic was a Frank Zappa album. Uh -huh. So sheer madness, Mike, but the gates have opened. Uh, well, it gets better. Uh, the gates have opened. Uh, so first of all, we've got the fantastic news that the government has bought an additional two million doses of the Moderna vaccine. Uh, this is the Moderna uh, promo video that goes with the vaccine. It's uh, it's well worth watching. Um, so, so um, Brian, guess how many doses of uh, COVID-19 vaccine the UK government has now bought? I would imagine a vast amount, Mike. It is now 357 million doses of vaccines from seven different developers. So uh, yesterday they signed this deal for a further 2 million doses of Moderna's promising, promising vaccine candidate, bringing the total from Moderna alone to 7 million doses. Uh, and uh, following that deal, uh, the UK now has access to enough doses of Moderna's vaccine for around 3.5 million people. So it's two doses each. Uh, to be approved for use in the UK, the Moderna vaccine must meet the strict standards uh, of safety and effectiveness of the independent medicines regulator, the MHRA. Well, we'll see a little bit more about that in a second. Uh, so this uh, now means that uh, the government has secured 357 million vaccine doses from seven different developers, uh, giving the UK the best possible chance of protecting the public from coronavirus as soon as possible. Uh, so maybe I could uh, welcome David Scott to the programme and, uh, and ask David, uh, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on 357 million? It does seem a lot, uh, given the fact that that's five doses for every man, woman and child in the country. Uh, thoughts? Well, um, we'll come to the claim that the, 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 the vaccines are going to be proved safe and effective when we discuss later on the principle of live not by lies. Um, I, I would also wonder just how much of the stuff will ever actually be used. It's starting to look like a, su a superannuation scheme for a big farmer to uh, make sure they have lots of money, um, as opposed to anything to actually do something for the nation's health. 
<laughs> well, I'd say that's spot on. The whole thing is about big profits for big pharma. And of course, they've, there have already been reports um, in the economic news that that's the case. So, yeah. Um, well, it gets better because uh, they've also, or Boris Johnson has also announced a 20 million fund to expand medicines manufacturing in the UK. Uh, he's announcing this today, or he has just announced it today. Uh, and uh, so this is going to be through a new capital investment fund. And it's going to op uh, open up investment opportunities for medicines manufacturers across England, Scotland and Wales uh, and provide our uh, improve our domestic medicine supply chains. So that's fantastic news, too. But it, uh, it gets even better because the question is, how on earth are we going to uh, you know, apply or how are we going to get 357 million doses out into the public? Uh, well, the answer is uh, is here uh, because uh, um, Simon Dolan retweeted a post from Mike. Uh, Michael Yeaton uh, yesterday, a volunteer vaccinator will assist if there's an adverse reaction, question mark, this is on Twitter. Uh, I've never read anything quite so frightening in relation to a medical matter since starting my training in 1981. Uh, and he included a screenshot uh, from uh, a website that we'll come on to in one second. Uh, and it's uh, this one, uh, which is the uh, NHS volunteer responders website have were you aware of this oh, i wasn't mike until this morning of course yes uh so this was set up by nhs england and royal voluntary service and it's working in uh, partnership with a, an online uh website called good sam what well, to just develop what they call a flexible app-based volunteering system um so that's very good but the problem was that uh this was tweeted out by simon dolan and uh, and mike eden but uh when you went and had a look at the volunteer roles that they had available, uh, it wasn't apparently listed. So, you know, you can be a community response volunteer, you can be a, a community response plus volunteer. That must, you must be offering extra response there or something. Uh, you can be a patient transport volunteer. Uh, you can be an NHS transport volunteer. You can check in and chat volunteer if you want, and you can be a check in and chat plus volunteer, but no mention of vaccinations. Um, so then I thought, well, okay, uh, let's have a look at the actual URL of the thing and see whether Google knows anything about it. And apparently Google doesn't know anything about it either. It looks like there weren't many great matches for your search. And that was when I searched for the specific URL, uh, which is uh, nhsvolunteerresponders.org.uk slash vaccination volunteers. Um, and so it's not on Google either. Uh, but it is if you actually search for vaccination for, for vaccinators on the uh, on the a volunteer, volunteer website, you do get uh, four pages uh, there. Uh, well, what about the mainstream press? Perhaps they've been discussing it. Well, not really very much. There's some local press, this uh, one uh, saying, play your part in history, army of Norfolk volunteers needed for COVID vaccine rollout. So it was starting to appear uh, in the local press at least. Um, but then wasn't sure whether it was this one because this is from a, a week or so ago. Uh, in the independent army of volunteers to deliver COVID vaccine. But actually this is St. John's Ambulance that is providing their volunteers uh, for this. So there's nothing to do with the, uh, the NHS volunteer website. So it's all a bit confusing. Um, so let's have a look at it. Uh, here is the, uh, the vaccine volunteers uh, section of their website. Become a vaccination volunteer. Uh, we're inviting our NHS volunteer responders to support the large scale COVID-19 vaccination program to come. Uh, you'll be able to help in a number of roles over the coming months. So let's have a look at the roles. You can be a vo volunteer vaccinator. Under the supervision of healthcare professionals, volunteer vaccinators will be trained to deliver a vaccination to a patient. 
uh, they will also be ready to act if a patient has an adverse reaction. So well, that should make you feel very comfortable. Well, I don't understand that, Mike, because we've been told that this, uh, these vaccinations are completely safe. The BBC on their um, news page today says they're absolutely safe. So why, why would we need people trained in adverse reactions? Uh, well, we'll come on to that in a second. Uh, vaccination care volunteer, you can be one of those. Uh, this role will be supporting patients all the way through from arrival to discharge. They will help patients get the right place, get to the right place to receive their vaccination and be on hand to provide first aid if everyone ha anyone has a medical emergency. And you can be a volunteer patient advocate. Um, well, this, of course, was pushed out on Twitter by Simon Dolan and Mike Eden yesterday. And lo and behold, of course, the mainstream media has been forced to respond. So the uh, Express this morning uh, published this article, Britain recruits an army of novices to administer COVID vaccine shots at £135 a day. Um, so, so, so just so that we all understand this, um, we destroy our economy and make lots of people unemployed um, through the policies that are, have, are, are being justified by uh, a so-called pandemic. Um, and then we take those unemployed people and offer them £135 a day for vaccinating the entire population. Yeah. That's a good deal. Or not. It's very dangerous. And of course, as somebody's pointed out in our chat box, what's the um, medical advice at the moment if somebody collapses on the floor? You should put a towel over their face. So I think if you're going to have trouble with the vaccine, you're going to have trouble with the type of uh, um, medical uh, help you're going to receive when that's happened. Um, but uh, we're speechless. Don't, really, yes. well, 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 it gets better, Brian, because we don't need to worry because, of course, we have the uh, government's uh, green book, as it's called. Uh, this is the book that defines uh, all the procedures for immunization against infectious disease. And there's a new chapter uh, is going into that 14A COVID-19-SARS-CoV-2. Um, and it goes through a potted history of at least a mainstream potted history of SARS-CoV-2 doesn't mention the fact that uh, there's evidence of SARS-CoV-2 being in uh, sewage samples taken from uh, at least a year previous to uh, the alleged initial outbreak in China, but doesn't worry about that. Talks about the type of va uh, vaccines that are required for it, talks about various things. Uh, but alongside this new chapter, uh, there is uh, some training material. So I thought we would have a brief look at that. Here we go from Public, Public Health England. Uh, the COVID-19 vaccination program core training slide set for health practitioners, if you want to find it. Uh, and let's have a look at the objectives. First of all, by the end of this session, you should be able to explain uh, what COVID-19 is and be aware of the UK epidemiology. You should be able to understand the policy behind COVID-19 vaccination program. You should be able to describe how vaccines work and how they're developed and trialled. And you should be able to identify the groups that are high risk of COVID infection and who should be prioritised to receive the vaccine. And you should be able to describe the process of consent and how this applies when giving vaccines. So we're going to have a look at a little bit more of this. Uh, but uh, here are the prerequisites apparently for anyone who wants to volunteer to be uh, a, a COVID vaccinator. Uh, before administering a vaccine, you should have undertaken training uh, in the management of anaphylaxis and basic life support as specified by policy in your local area. You should have undertaken any additional statutory and mandatory training as required by your employer. You should have received COVID-19 vaccine training through attending a taught session uh, and or the e-learning for healthcare COVID-19 vaccine e-learning program. Uh, you should have received practical training in COVID-19 preparation and administration, sorry, vaccine preparation and administration. Uh, you should uh, have completed the COVID-19 vaccinator competency assessment tool. Uh, yeah. This is all good stuff. 
uh, but it gets better. Uh, regulatory approval and licensing. So this is the uh, training material on that. Uh, in exceptional situations, the MHA, MHRA may enact Regulation 174. This enables them to temporarily authorize the supply of an unlicensed medicinal product in response to certain identified public health risks, such as the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. So it's absolutely clear that that is what is going to happen with these 357 million doses. Um, they're going to get uh, basically pushed through without uh, any particular concerns over safety at all. Uh, then let's have a look at what they say about before administering a vaccine. Uh, you should make sure that there are no contra uh, sorry, no contraindications contra uh, to the vaccine being given, uh, that they or their carer is fully informed about the vaccine to be given and understand the vaccination procedure, that they or their carer is aware of possible adverse reactions to the vaccine and how to treat them, uh, and that they have consented to having the vaccine. Now, the issue of consent is, is a key one. Let's uh, have a look at that. Uh, this is what the uh, training material is saying. Consent is a process, not a one-off discussion that must consider three factors. First of all, the person giving consent must be appropriately informed. They must have the necessary information in order to make the decision. Consent must be voluntary by the individual without undue pressure or co coercion. Uh, the person consenting must have the capacity to make the decision. Uh, so when it comes on to informed consent, however, uh, they're saying that uh, uh, it could be, uh, it's a legal requirement, the patient's views must be respected, there must be sufficient evidence-based information provided to the person to enable them to make a balanced and informed decision. It can be given, consent be, can be given verbally in writing or it can be implied. Uh, however consent is given, the person must understand what they're consenting to if there are any issues or uncertainties, ask for advice. Uh, but of course, not all people can give consent because they don't all have capacity to give consent. So where it's in the patient's interest, someone else can give consent on their behalf. Yeah, all of this immensely uh, dangerous, Mike, from the training aspect and people are uh, grabbing at 135 pounds a day in order to get some money coming into their household. They're going to take on this sort of thing. But isn't it interesting that that ends with the fact that uh, it, it's saying that if people are um, not giving consent or are questioning what's happening, that the person should t take it up with a more experienced colleague rather than abandon the offer. The offer, that's an interesting expression of immunisation. I, I see in this um, the state is in a, a tremendous hurry to get this programme out, but they're not quite sure of their ground. This is being couched in a very careful language because I think they are anticipating a backlash. Uh, David, the thing that strikes me about this issue of consent uh, is the word informed. And what's clear from this training material is that they're, they're at least uh, giving the, uh, the notion that uh, consent has to be informed. You've got to be given both sides of the story, but I have yet to see any evidence uh, it, with respect to any other vaccination program that the government has ever uh, undertaken, including uh, the flu vaccine. Uh, that they are giving the whole story. Well, this is the problem. Government, uh, through the state broadcast of the BBC, uh, have decided not to give the other side of the story. They've made an editorial decision that concerns over vaccine safety will not be discussed. It will be kept secret. And uh, we've got uh, senior police officers, senior politicians talking about changing the law to 
clamp down on these nasty anti-vaxxers with their unfortunate stories of real-life harm caused by vaccines uh, so that their arguments will not be seen on the internet. This cannot be informed consent. What information are we talking about under, this, under the subject inform? Only state-approved information, only propaganda. That's the problem. Yeah, I, well, I couldn't add any more to that, but we, we know what's happening very, very serious. Nearly used the word there, very serious. <laughs> <laughs> I'll end at that. Yeah. Okay, now let's uh, move on to various protests. Uh, lots of you have sent uh, images and video of, of protests that have been going on around the country, so thank you very much for that. Unfortunately, we can't show it all. Uh, but, uh, David, let's start in Scotland. Uh, and uh, what, have we, what have we got here? What's going on? Well, uh, in honour of, uh, uh, of St Andrew's Day and uh, because there had been not much fun in Scotland for a very long time, some people assembled of their own volition without being organised to do so uh, to have a Cayley in the park outside Parliament. There was singing, uh, there was dancing, there was some poetry and there were some people having fun. So uh, obviously Police Scotland decided they had to arrest someone. So this is Professor Richard Enos, who, who the police were convinced was called Peter, uh, which he's not, and they were convinced that he was the organiser, uh, which he wasn't. And uh, they uh, took him away, despite everyone round about saying, no, this is, you, you're, you're misinformed, you're acting unlawfully. Now, a couple of things here. The, the police did get a bit agitated, and uh, Professor Enos did, did tell them that, that they were getting very upset. They really ought to calm down, which is quite a funny moment. Um, but, uh, I mean, credit to Police Scotland, they didn't use grievous violence of the type we're seeing in London, uh, which obviously we're very pleased about. Uh, and uh, the good professor was subsequently released. I think he was fined £60 for non-Covid rules uh, compliance, uh, but they didn't decide to go any harder than that. But it is striking that celebrating Scottish culture uh, on or near uh, St Andrew's Day uh, is now banned with the Scottish Government and they're using Police Scotland to stamp out that sort of thing. Okay, and uh, then we move on to the tears of a man who's lost his business. This is, I think, one of the most um, defining moments of the COVID crisis. So this man had his livelihood destroyed by the government's rules and he went down on his own to protest and he was arrested and he just he just sat down on the pavement in complete despair and wept and uh, that photograph that one there right with the policeman not knowing what to do and the man weeping the masked policeman with his black face covering looking clearly confused and not treating a, a human being in distress the way we all ought to treat human beings in distress, that defines uh, the COVID crisis for me. Uh, you know, we were talking about uh, consent just a second ago. This is another view of it. Uh, do you want me to read this? Uh, um, the, this came from uh, a publication from the mid-1800s. And, and like so many uh, of 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 uh, works from that period when viewed now seems wonderful and detailed and rich and full of ideas. Uh, it defines consent as followed, an act of reason accompanied with deliberation 
the mind weighing as in balance the good and evil of each side. Every true consent supposes three things, a physical power, a mental power, and a free and serious use of them. Hence it is that if consent be obtained by mediated imposition, circumvention, surprise, or undue influence, it is to be treated as a delusion and not as deliberate and free act of mind. For although the law will not generally examine um, into the wisdom or prudence of men in disposing of their property or binding themselves by contracts or by other acts, yet it will not suffer them to be entrapped by fraudulent contrivances, cunning or deceitful management of those who purposefully mislead them. Sage committee, for example. Yes. Yeah. I, thought that, I thought that was a wonderful definition of consent. A wonderful definition and, and particularly potent against this background of the forced uh, vaccines, apart from anything else. Uh, but uh, that brings us on then to the Times. Uh, winner of PPE jackpot buys third home, one for parents. Some people are, are doing well out of this business. Yes, it's not all losers, right? We've, we've seen the man crying on the street. This is the other side of it, former Tory councillor. I uh, was awarded a £276 million government contract to provide PPE um, and uh, followed by another £120 million contract to supply masks. He's now bought himself a 1.5 grade 2 listed property in the Cotswolds and a £250,000 holiday home in Cornwall and a £50,000 property for his parents in Exeter, which seems a little miserly, only £50,000. Um, so. Here you see there are winners and there are losers, right? Now this man's come from uh, coming for some personal um, abuse uh, because of the amount of cash he's been raking in. But of course the abuse should go to the people who are doling the cash out, the politicians, the bureaucrats, who are picking winners from amongst their friends um, and are awarding huge contracts because it's an emergency without competitive tender and who are impoverishing the country to en enrich the rich their friends and their associates. This is how fascism works. Um, this is how a totalitarian state behaves. There are those who are well connected, and those of those of us who are not. It's not. It's a different world. Yep, David. Well, let's come on to the uh, police behaviour, which. Uh, I think this email to the UK column really sums it up. So this is in relation to the London demo, the full emails on the left of your screen, but just an excerpt here. Uh, bar police violence, the demonstration was entirely peaceful and many are convinced police hitting females is a deliberate way of provoking a male protection response to attain arrests. I am proud to have served in the British Army with real men to protect the British people from harm and to see this uniformed scum battening innocent women across their heads was sickening. Um, well, here is the uh, statement from the Metropolitan Police. The Met has made 155 arrests while policing a number of demonstrations in central London today, Saturday 28th of November. Uh, these arrests were for offences including breaching coronavirus regulations, assaulting a police officer and possession of drugs. Officers made a number of early interventions to prevent people from gathering and to urge people to go home. As part of this, coaches transporting uh, protesters into the capital were intercepted and those who did not turn back and go home were either arrested or issued with fixed penalty notices. Uh, and we saw plenty of uh, material over, over social media over the weekend uh, on uh, a number of coaches 
uh, as, as the, uh, that had been stopped on the way into London. Well, here's the man that was in charge of the police operation, uh, Met Police Chief Superintendent Stuart Bell. Uh, this was a challenging day for the Met, he said. City of London and British uh, Transport Police officers and I would like to thank them for the professionalism uh, they have shown throughout the day. Well, were they professional? We'll have a look at that in a second. Uh, he went on to say, on Friday, we made it very clear how we would police this event, warning those looking to attend that they risked facing enforcement action if they attended a gathering in London. Um, so that was, uh, that was what he had to say. Here's another email from one of our viewers, and thank you very much for this one as well. Uh, Dear UK Column, I attended the Save Our Rights March on Saturday in central London and was shocked and disgusted by the brutish and intimidated manner of the police. Uh, who were out in, for, in full force. I was one of the many who was singled out, surrounded by six police and asked what I was doing there. Uh, and uh, he went on to talk about, uh, uh, you know, he couldn't understand what was being said. He asked for the police officer's number. He, it was screamed at him as quickly as possible. In other words, to make it as uh, unintelligible as possible. He asked two or three more times for the number. Uh, eventually, one of the, 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 uh, the person who's in charge of the particular group that were around him, uh, spoke slowly and clearly enough for him to be able to note it down. Uh, he witnessed elderly people being manhandled away, uh, and so it goes on. So uh, the Met made these 155 arrests. They claim uh, professionalism. Let's just look at some of the, uh, well, Piers Corbyn was there, of course, uh, but we see them all, the, the tactical response units, all in their gear, as usual. Brian, and uh, thank you very much to Fraser, who sent these uh, images through. Uh, but, you know, again, we have more evidence of individuals being targeted, specifically targeted by the police and then groups of police uh, around one particular individual. I'm just going to throw in here, Mike, when you see them like this in this gear, these are not police constables. This is Stasi. I, I think it's really important people start using the right words to describe what's going on. This is not policing action. This is state enforcement by the Stasi. Okay, so what, 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 I, what I took out of this, this image here represents it uh, most starkly, Brian. What was absolutely clear to me was that this was designed to be intimidatory, but worse than that, where they actually singled people out, they were going out of their way to inflict pain. Uh, there was no, there's no two ways about that. That was what they were intending to do. And it seems to me that uh, this is no more, you know, if we, if we take uh, the, uh, the comment from Superintendent uh, Stuart Bell there, where he said, basically, you were warned how we were going to police this event on Friday, but you turned up anyway, so you got everything you deserved. Um, it was clear they went in with that intention. They went in with that intention and with this man's approval. So it's Stuart Bell's face, his name, all of the criticism, all of the comments should be aimed at that particular individual because he holds responsibility. But I stick by the comment. You're looking at a Stasi system in operation. This is Stasi. This is not policing in the normal sense. Um, now, uh, True Publica don't always agree with everything they publish, but this is a great article, The New Norm, uh, Government Lawbreaking, uh, published uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and David, uh, they are really making the point or taking some examples of, of the law breaking of what they describe as Boris Johnson's administration. They're saying it's now reached an unprecedented scale for a British government and we should all be concerned. So they're talking about uh, September last year, the Supreme Court ruling that uh, Johnson's advice to the Queen that Parliament should be prorogued for five weeks was unlawful. Uh, talking about the fact that uh, members of Parliament have been pushing 
the UK government to back down over the uh, uh, breach of international law, which is the uh, Internal Markets Bill, uh, that they are creating what is being described as a clearinghouse to control freedom of information requests, uh, and that uh, it's being described in this article as Orwellian uh, within the uh, Cabinet Office. Uh, which is instructing Whitehall departments on how to respond to freedom of information, information requests. But worse still, they say, it collects the personal information about journalists who submit them for, for, for nefarious reasons. They're collecting the information for nefarious reasons anyway. And then they highlight that last Tuesday, Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, acted unlawfully by failing to consult children's rights bodies before deliberately watering down safeguards for children in care. Uh, and of course, they discuss Pretty Patel and the, and the, the cover up of the report on her behavior. Uh, but David, uh, they, they argue that the rule of law is not for this government. And it's pretty clear that the rule of law, despite the fact that they've been claiming to defend it for the last 20 years, hasn't really been at the forefront of the minds of too many in, in various British governments in recent decades. My, con my concern that with that article is that it actually misses the point. It's not the areas where um, some form of uh, conflict with, with, with the courts have, been, have cropped up or where a rule has been broken by the government that's a big problem. It's the areas where the rules have been made by the government that's a big problem. They're making laws which reverse the law. They're making laws that say you can't go out and protest, you can't meet another human being, you can't go into a shop uh, unmasked. They're making laws that, are, that oppress us. They're legal. Everything that Hitler did was legal. They're making laws which are legal, which are oppressive. It's not the law breaking that's the big problem. It's the law making that's the big problem. Agree with that, David, and a good introduction to the next segment. So BBC, of course, uh, had to get the arrests in. So COVID, more than 150 arrests at London lockdown. Uh, what I was interested in was um, pretty, not so, well, not so pretty Patel. Uh, her comment was at the end of the article. She said, we've seen our police officers yet again do incredible work to ensure that they help to stop the spread of this awful virus. Wow. So that's uh, what she thinks. And notice it's our police officers. She's not talking about uh, policing by consent for the public. She's talking about the Stasi, the government's police officers. The police that are protect, uh, sorry, the people that are protesting today have been protesting for many months, and we've seen this over successive weekends. Uh, we ask everybody to be conscientious. We all know the regulations and the guidance. We've brought these measures in to save lives. Excellent. And to prevent preventable deaths. So the inference is uh, we've brought the police in, so you better back off and let us get on with our laws, as David said. Um, but uh, I'm interested in the behaviour of the police. And uh, of course, we pointed out the common purpose uh, was one of the political charities interfering in police training many, many years ago. Uh, but I think uh, it's also interesting to see what Pretty Patel has been up to, because back on the 3rd of November 2017, um, we've got BBC here reporting that she held undisclosed meetings in Israel. Uh, she said that Boris Johnson knew about the visit. The point is that the Foreign Office did know about this. Boris knew about it. It's not on. It's not on at all. So she didn't like it that she was criticised for going to 
Israel in a personal capacity but then having meetings with all sorts of people that wasn't uh, reported back in UK so was she there to discuss policing I wonder well of course we don't know because there's no records of the minutes uh, but this is interesting so we've got the Jewish Chronicle here um, talking about Europe's police take anti-terror tips from Israel now remember of course that terror is not just sort of overseas terrorists now this is any of the British public that dare challenge the government we are to be classified as terrorists but it says on a visit to London uh, last week and this is going back to 2017 as well Israel's National Police spokesman Mickey Rosenfeld called on Britain to up its game in trying to combat terrorism and he addressed the United Synagogue in central London and he drew an uncompromising picture of the different approaches to terrorism in Israel and in Europe part of the problem was Europe's open borders and as a result the difficulty of identifying tracking potential terrorists and uh, of course Mike we've now got a government which is going uh, at warp speed to use that expression in order to identify and track anybody in this country but there's more he said that's exactly the difference between Israel and Europe Israel has a strong concrete intelligence we know what house what number what name what vehicle we know almost to the last detail who lives where who is moving around and who is communicating and is it not the same policy that we've now seen introduced into UK yeah. assisted by state intelligence and 77 brigade but of course it's just a coincidence so uh, pretty Patel held her meetings was it about policing we don't know uh, but interestingly the independent here has also reported that UK police are turning to Israel for help stopping lone wolf terror attacks uh, UK column going back a couple of, of years produced this diagram showing it was Francis Maud boasting of linking together a whole host of uh, intelligence agencies with the Israelis I regret to say that's more than a couple of years uh, March yeah, it's 2014 <laughs> time flies when you're having fun uh, but you'll see the top right there we've also got the International Business Times uh, talking about police training going on with Israelis so let's have a look at that this was the headline Israeli army trained London police in tactics strategy during Gaza crisis says a report their investigation said that between the 1st of March the 4th sorry between um, March the 4th and the 31st of August this year that was 2014 at least 80 personnel working for the Met had traveled to Israel for tactics and strategy training uh, they went on but I'm going to have to say is this fake news and why do I say that because uh, a viewer kindly provided us this so here's the mayor of London the London Assembly replying to a question and this is uh, September the 16th 20 uh, sorry uh, it's yep. after the 9th 16th of the 9th 2015 let's blow that question up a constituent has made me aware of an article investigating the claim that Met Police sent police officers to Israel between the 1st of March 2014 and the 1st of August 2014 for training is it true if so what was the purpose how much did it cost and the report uh, the reply at the bottom is that the Metropolitan Police Service has not sent officers to Israel for training purposes ah but they don't say that they weren't sent to Israel at all 
well I, I'm going to say so have we got a major news outlet producing fake news uh, because according to the mayor of London it seems to be fake news but let's go in a bit deeper here's the Times of Israel and on a visit to Israel assistant commissioner Alastair Sutherland lords his officer's response to the London bridge attack and this is September 2017 as part of the British police search for methods to better prevent terror attack, attacks Sutherland visited the country to deliver an address at the interdisciplinary center uh, for counter-terrorism during his visits he made he met with representatives from the Israeli government as well as local security technology companies to see how their techniques and products could be integrated into his police department that all seems a very cozy relationship but it goes on we have to look to world experts in the realm of protective security and Israel would be in that realm it was Sutherland's sixth visit to Israel and his second time speaking at the IDC the City of London Police is not particularly concerned about the controversy associated with working with Israel although it is aware of it so um, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked uh, is this brutal policing that we're now seeing in UK has that come through common purpose has it come through training with Europol or indeed has it come from training with Israel David it's quite clear that there is uh, an increasingly cozy relationship with Israel on many matters usually not reported in the British press for whatever reason this is true we saw this with the integrity initiative because uh, we picked that little team up uh, visiting the uh, the Middle East's version of Bilderberg um, to discuss all sorts of security matters and geopolitical matters uh, from a, a, a perspective of, of um, <clears throat> the Israeli state. Yeah. Um, now, the next video uh, clip we've got is an incident which happened in Spain. I've put it on screen because it is so br brutal. Some people might find this very difficult to watch. But my question is, is this policing the pattern of Europol training which of course British police were fully integrated with for many years but this is where it gets unless the wider public stop what is now happening with uh, policing let's look at this clip <laughs> of course people in UK have been killed as a result of uh, UK police uh, using tasers in one tragic incident with Devon and Cornwall police a man was set alight because he'd got mental health problems and he covered himself with fuel he was then tasered by the police uh, but we know how dangerous these weapons are let's look at some of the tweet Twitter replies to that particular incident and I'm going to say are these real replies or are they actually replies from the 77th Brigade of the British Army so we've got a Richard here the rules were set up to stop the spread if she didn't didn't listen to the cops telling her to wait outside 
and then resisted them, uh, the inevitable happened. Uh, if that's not the case, this is a terrible abuse of power. The background is this lady took her mother to a psychological clinic for some assistance, uh, but she was not allowed in. And uh, that's when the dispute started. But the rules were there to stop the spread. And if she didn't, didn't listen. And this one from Paul, very simple. She broke the rules. Um, they called the police and she got zapped. Had she followed the rules, all would have gone well. And we'll just give you two more. Hmm, I wonder what would have happened if she had simply just complied. And this one from a Billy Bostickson. I think the young woman's behaviour in a public space is inexcusable. She may get away with it with a hen-pecked husband at home, but she certainly deserved a good slapping from the forces of law and order to calm her hysteria. So, David, very quickly, these are very brutal replies to what I regard as the torture of that woman on the pavement. And, and we can now see how what I'm going to describe as cultural Marxism is ripping society apart, whether it's in Spain or UK. Yes, and I recognise the response. It's the response of the terrorist. The terrorist says, well, yes, we killed people. We, we blew up a railway station. We did this, we did that. But we did it because you didn't comply. You didn't give in to our demands. Remember this from Ulster, right? We, we have demands. Uh, the government's not giving in to demands, so we're killing people, and it's the government's fault. This is the problem. This is the mindset of the terrorist. What more can you say? Right. <laughs> Okay, look, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community uh, and there are options to help us out there and that'd be very much appreciated. Now, anybody that is a member uh, and would like to watch uh, the UK Column News Extra today, uh, this will be going out live straight after this programme. So just stay uh, in the chat box and about 10 or 15 minutes after we end the programme today, we'll get started with that. And we can answer questions, yes, that being the yes, case. Yes, exactly. All right, several people have asked me to update the details for David Noakes, who's still being held in the French prison. So if you want to contact him, these are the details you need. David Noakes, 459199, Fleury Morogis Prison, 7 Avenue du Peuplier, 91705, Fleury Morogis, France. And we're also, uh, we've also been informed that David had a hearing on the 5th of October to see if he could be released on TAG. Uh, that was refused about a week ago. His lawyer's appealing, and we believe that the appeal will be heard this coming Wednesday. So we'll, if we have news about that appeal, we will, of course, let people know. Uh, right. Uh, well, here's the uh, wonderful Michael Gove. And in mid-2019, well, actually, he'd been talking about this for about a year or a couple of years before this. Uh, but he said, uh, as we leave the EU, we have an historic opportunity to deliver a farming policy that works for the whole industry. Um, well, they've now launched their farming policy. Uh, it's really fantastic stuff. It was announced today. Uh, and uh, so, well, one thing that we aren't going to see so much of is sheep on the fields or cows on the fields. Uh, we are not going to see too much of that because uh, they're going. Um, so let's have a look and see what they're talking about. It's all about sustainable farming because the new Green Deal is uh, what we're talking about. Environmental land management scheme uh, is what they're going to set up to incentivize sustainable farming practices, create habitats for nature recovery 
and establish new woodland to help tackle climate change. They've been talking about this some, for some time. This is all about the fact that we are coming out of the common agricultural policy, uh, that we're repatriating the money that we were paying into the common agricultural policy. And the question was, what would we do with that money? And it turns out we're going to build, we're going to grow some forests, we're going to make some wildflower meadows, we're going to make some footpaths. Uh, farmers will be given some of this money in the event that they do things for the public good. And food production is not for the public good. Brian? Well, absolutely not. Uh, this is Agenda 2030 coming through. Certainly. And uh, direct payments will be reduced fairly. Now, some of the farmers uh, press saying that uh, direct payments will be reduced by 50%. Uh, starting from the uh, 2021 basic payment scheme year, with the money released being used to fund new grants and schemes to boost farmers' productivity and reward environmental improvements. Well, guess what? Tiers don't just apply to COVID, they apply to for farming as well. Uh, so there are three tiers of new funding uh, available as a result of this repatriation of money. Tier one is what they're calling the Sustainable Farming Incentive. Uh, this is the, the, the first tier of the new grant system uh, and it's for basic activities such as crop rota rotation, uh, uh, soil conservation and so on. Farmers are mostly doing that anyway. Uh, so they'll get the tier one money. Tier two is uh, local nature recovery. So this is for actions such as creating, managing or restoring habitats, uh, flood management and species management. And tier three is landscape recovery, which will focus on landscape and ecosystem recovery. This will include creation of large forests, peatland restoration, uh, or the creation and restoration of wetlands and salt marshes. Uh, but uh, David, it's not about farming. It's not about farming, it's about taking the land out of production. Wetlands and salt marshes and um, uh, were all areas that were recovered from the sea or from um, chaos uh, and turned into productive farmland from about 1750 on with the great agricultural improvement. Um, and <clears throat> that seems to be no longer acceptable. Improvement seems to be no longer acceptable. Uh, we must uh, devolve backwards um, to a state of nature. Um, just as a, a matter of interest, I'm just interested in your thoughts on this. If, if, uh, if we're seeing massive black holes in pension pots uh, and we're seeing a, a reduction in our food growing capability, bearing in mind that we're currently only 60, 50 or 60% uh, uh, food independent. Uh, and of course, uh, as we've been told, we're going to have all kinds of problems as a result of coming out of the EU, if we believe that story. But nonetheless, we're seeing food production in the UK, UK reduced at the same time that we're seeing pension capability reduced. Um, if you were a policy setter, on what basis would you make those decisions or what assumptions would you have? Well, <clears throat> one of the assumptions is that money is no longer real. It can just be created. Um, but uh, other assumptions regarding, oh, I don't know, lifespan of the elderly um, or um, perhaps the, uh, um, the amount of nutrition we're all going to have um, I would be very interested to know what the assumptions are because you're right, Mike, it doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't seem to be a normal response to human need. Uh, well, indeed. Right. Now let's uh, head to Scotland, uh, David. And uh, what's Hamza Yusuf been up to? Well, what hasn't he been up to? Hamza, <clears throat> um, we're going to uh, touch briefly on the... Uh, hate crime bill, which is still going on. Uh, this is from Pink News. 
uh, anti-trans activists who aggressively campaign against trans women will be breaking the law, Justice Minister confirms. So we're still trying to figure out what law is. It's going through Parliament. We're not quite sure what it is yet. Uh, Scott's, uh, Scotland's Justice Minister has confirmed that the new hate crime legislation will mean anti-trans activists who aggressively campaign against transgender people will be breaking the law. Uh, and this could okay, include, so for example... Might think Sorry, this could, could include, for example, women who, who don't want uh, trans... Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, women who might be concerned that the woman in the next cubicle in the toilet has a penis and might view that as somewhat of a threat and might want to maintain women-only spaces in, in order to, uh, to make sure that they are safe um, from, from male aggression. But something which we've recognised as a problem uh, since ever has been a society, really, um, and they might, they might fall foul of this. Now, Humza went on to explain more detail, uh, in more detail what he meant. He was questioned <clears throat> on uh, the 25th of November, asked if the law would criminalise those who say trans women are not women. Yusuf said, no, not as an opinion. It may be offensive to some, controversial to others, mainstream view for many others, but simply expressing an opinion isn't itself criminal. Thank you, Hamza. He then added, if there's threatening behaviour which accompanies that expression, it can be and it can be proved beyond reasonable doubt that it was intended to stir up hatred. Remember, we don't know what that even means yet. Then, of course, it could be prosecuted, but that will be not down to the perception of any particular victim, but an objective analysis by the court. So the court will decide what your intention was. He then went on, that Hamza Yusuf, who's a Scottish National Party cabinet minister, confirmed that a campaign promoting the view that sex cannot be changed would be prosecuted if it is deemed to be deliberately provocative. So it's quite clear, you can have an opinion, but if you campaign for your opinion and it doesn't meet the SNP's reduced um, area of acceptable opinion, you will be prosecuted for hate crime. This is about silencing people. This is about ending free, free speech in Scotland. This is about the one-party state. Humza this week announced that he was, he was a son of SNP. Whatever that actually means, he seems to see the party as a substitute family. This is very worrying. This is very totalitarian. Uh, but it goes further because uh, parents potentially face prosecution if insulting remarks are repeated in the playground, says the Times. Well, one aspect of the hate crime bill is that being inside your own dwelling is no defence. So what you say around the dinner table will be used against you in evidence. Um, so this is the Times reporting um, earlier in November uh, that children risk exposing their parents to hate crime charges by repeating private conversations about transgender rights in the playground. A frontline police representative has, cl has claimed. This is Callum Steele, General Secretary for the Scottish Police Federation, who have been excellent on this subject matter, incidentally, um, in, and who represents frontline officers. He says that children could unwittingly inform on their parents if insulting remarks about transgender rights, immigration or refugees are repeated in the playground. So here you see again, just like named person, it's all about gathering information, gathering information from the children, storing it and using it to act against families or parents as, as and when the state um, so, so decides. Um, but it's not just in Scotland, David, uh, also in Ireland. Now, 
Uh, it's coming in Ireland too. And in, in Biden's America, it seems. But, but we've got a couple of quotes here from, from the Irish Times. Uh, this is human rights groups call for hate crime legislation in Ireland to be updated. Colm O'Gorman of Amnesty International says that Irish people must be actively anti-racist. So silence isn't enough anymore. In, in Ireland, silence is not going to be enough. He says, freedom of expression does not extend to hate crime and Irish people need to accept that, it, that quote, it's not enough to be anti-racist, that there needs to be, they need to be actively anti-racist. Um, said, uh, yeah, um, the, there is a need to be more than reactive. So th this is very interesting. So if an Irish person might say something like Ireland for the Irish, that's pretty soon going to be prosecuted by the Irish state, which is a very interesting development. Um, the Garda um, made a statement about this. Um, the Garda said they were actively investigating uh, recent cases. Hate crime is abhorrent and we treat such incidents seriously. Anyone there with information about these incidents should contact us directly. Hate crime was any criminal offence which is perceived by the victim or any other person to be in part or in whole motivated by hostility or prejudice based on actual perceived age, disability, race, colour, nationality, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation or gender. This is exactly the same definition as Police Scotland have. Uh, they don't go into the hate incident, which is a, which is a non-crime hate crime, right, which Police Scotland also gather information on. Um, but the key thing is, it's entirely subjective. If the victim or any other person considers it's motivated by hate, that makes it a hate crime. It's subjective. This is uh, the direction that Ireland is going in is exactly the same totalitarian direction the Scottish government has been going in. Um, in Ireland, opposition seems to be slower to, to, um, to find its feet. There are people in the Irish nationalist community speaking out against this. And here we've got Gerard Casey, who is a philosopher uh, and libertarian thinker from Ireland. He's speaking out. He's got a video e examining exactly what hate crime is and saying that hate crime is thought crime. Um, and that, that analysis of exactly what the legislation does and how it does it, how incoherent it is, is well worth examining. Uh, if, if people search on his name, I'm sure they'll find it on YouTube. Um, but what's going on within the Scottish government uh, with respect to uh, trans ideology? Well, I've got here, this is a, 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 a report by the Christian Institute raising the alarm that um, what we've actually got is the Scottish Civil Service um, being um, controlled to an enormous degree by the ideology of Stonewall. Uh, so they're reporting here a number of new uh, policies, have, policies have been introduced in the last few years as the Civil Service has applied for a place on Stonewall's Diversity Champions Index. These include a compulsory diversity objective for all staff to make the Scottish Government, quote, a more diverse and inclusive place to work. Training on intersectionality and on unconscious bias and the use of gender-neutral language. Um, so the, the report that has been in FOI, they found that things like phrases like adoptive father has been changed to adoptive parent. Um, I, so the, any reference to father, mother, man, woman, this is all being expunged from Scottish civil service guidance 
um, to make way for um, the, the, the trans ideology. Um, and uh, Simon Calvert of the Christian Institute questions this. He, he, he asks whether this is politically impartial. Um, he says, the extent of Stonewall's influence in the civil service is alarming, particularly given the controversial nature of some of his political aims. Stonewall's stance on trans issues is strongly opposed by women's organisations, medics and faith groups, yet the civil service appears to endorse it wholesale. How does this fit with the civil service's duty to remain politically impartial? He continues, staff are encouraged to attend training sessions on intersectionality and unconscious bias. These are controversial ideas disputed in the wider society, so it's concerning that they are written into the training schedule for the civil service employees. So here we see an important way that the change is managed. The, the power of the government as an employer is used to change the way the civil servants think, and they then write the legislation that then um, forces the rest of us to comply or risk being tasered or beaten up in a street in London or arrested uh, on spurious grounds in Edinburgh if you went to enjoy an outdoor paley. David, um, ex excellent um, segment there. I'm going to come on to regaining our language, really regaining mm -hmm. words, because what were you talking about? You mentioned the phrase intersectionality, which UK columns now started to talk about, warn people about. But really what you're talking about is cultural Marxism. Let's have a look at how we can see that in what's happening around us. Here's the Guardian, NHS to use celebrities in drive to encourage COVID vaccine take up. This is uh, applied psychology being used here to manipulate the public. This is cultural Marxism. I did also pick up on uh, <laughs> Yusuf, yeah. Um, so here was the hate crime bill saying trans women, or women could break the law. And I anticipated the swimming pool shower. You chose the toilet. But um, activists who promote the view that trans woman is not a woman will be breaking the wall. Uh, breaking the law if a court rules their campaign was intended to stir up hatred. So if you don't like the person with a penis in the shower next to you at the swimming pool and you ask them to leave, presumably that would be stirring up hatred. But this is cultural Marxism. This is all designed to break down society. And how strange that we should have the Jewish Chronicle here um, exposing, well, I'm actually going to say well done because I couldn't find this anywhere else, but Tory MPs and peers warned over the use of the term cultural Marxism and effectively they've been told to drop it. Uh, a briefing paper prepared by the Anti-Semitic Policy Trust was sent to all Conservative MPs and peers on November the 11th warning that using the term could result in their words inadvertently acting as a quote dog whistle for the far right. So if you talk about the factual existence of, of a thing called cultural Marxism, according to this anti-Semitic group, you're going to be branded far right. Um, and so they say here, writing for the Jewish Chronicle, Mr. Percy MP, who is Jewish, said many of those who had used the term cultural Marxism and expressed surprise that it could be used by those wishing to make anti-Semitic arguments and that several undertook not to use it again. So we've got censorship here by this organisation, the Anti-Semitism Policy Trust. If we look at the number of people involved in it in Parliament, 
uh, too many to actually read through. Um, I'm going to come back to you very quickly with an eye on the clock, David. How does free speech in UK cope with uh, lobbying on this scale? Within Parliament, we've now got massive lobbying telling us that we can't even discuss cultural Marxism. Yes, or telling us that cultural Marxism is an is a anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. This is this is trying to change reality. This is trying to gaslight us to say that reality is not what you think it is. It's what we tell you it is. This is extremely totalitarian in its very essence. Um, and that's something we might get to in more in extra time, uh, but very worrying. And uh, obviously, I would point out that, that some of the finest people who uh, opposed cultural Marxism, including Murray Rothbard, which is, who is on my T-shirt, right, were in fact Jewish. This is not a Jewish thing, despite what the Jewish Chronicle thinks. The Jewish Chronicle is concerned because the cultural Marxist movement was very largely Jewish when it first went to America. Right? But that's, that's not the issue here. The issue is it's wrong, it's harmful, and it's, and it's determined to destroy our society. And it's important that people get on the right side of this argument and not play some sort of bizarre identity politics where we try to um, determine our views solely based on our ethnicity. It's, um, it's not the way to be a human being. Not the way to be a human, be human being. And of course, the Jewish community are themselves at risk if this totalitarian regime installs itself. Let's just go back to UK column report of uh, 2018. Here's David Cameron. And we were pointing out that in his March 2010 Conservative Party speech, he announced that big society is a guiding philosophy, a society where the leading force for progress is social responsibility, not state control. It includes a whole set of unifying approaches, breaking state monopoly, allowing charities, social enterprises and companies to provide public services, making the government more accountable. But the Conservative Home blog, spot, uh, blog site and the Office for Civil Society admitted that this plan is directly based on the successful community organising movement established by the Marxist Saul Alinsky in the United States. So we had the interesting situation that the leader of the Tory party was actively promoting Saul Alinsky cultural Marxism. And I'm going to suggest to our audience that's actually what we're facing, uh, crypto Marxists who are masquerading as Tories. Mm. Let's leave it there. I think we should. Uh, do we want one end slide? Uh, the very okay. last slide we always choose in order to try and, I think, raise morale a little bit. David, you produced this one, so uh, on your, sh on your well, shoulders. I, yeah, this is, this is from, uh, <laughs> this is from uh, the British press. It shows that the, the British press and British press cartoonists still have some life in them. Um, and here we have Boris opening the door of the jail cell He's got a little union flag flying above it and saying to the poor British person inside, as promised your freedom. And he's looking at a bare um, prison yard with a perimeter wall, barbed wire, um, guard dogs patrolling the edge and a, and a, and a watchtower uh, with an armed guard in it. That's our freedom. I thought that was uh, very good. 
Uh, very good indeed. So it's up to us what we say, what we do will determine whether this uh, dictatorship installs itself. Can it be stopped? I think it can. A lot of work to be done by a great many people and sitting doing nothing as you would say, Mike, is not an option. No, indeed. Uh, just a quick reminder, UK Column Extra, if you're in the chat box, stick around. We'll be uh, back in about uh, 10 minutes uh, and uh, we'll see you there, hopefully. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.